Hello again, this is Father John Arnold and this is Oro Valley Catholic. Catholic faith is characterized by the call to trust both our faith and our capacity for reason. Faith calls reason beyond where it can go on its own. Faith points us towards the reality of the human vocation in the world and our destiny. Faith also allows us to identify patterns of thought in humanity that bears the imprint of Christ. And for the early Christians, Platonic thought, that is philosophy, pointed towards a world that lay behind all physical or natural experiences of reality. Today in Oro Valley Catholic, I want to talk about a classic of Platonic philosophy that was written 2,500 years ago called The Symposium by Plato. Okay, so you're thinking this is supposed to be about the gospel, and it is. But remember, in philosophy, philosophers draw upon our common human experience and use their reason. Early Christians, especially Greek Christians, saw in Plato this compatible body of thought that really helped to explain the gospel. And so Plato and Socrates lived 400 years before Christ. The symposium is a platonic dialogue. That is, he teaches, Plato teaches philosophy through various characters asking and answering questions. So platonic dialogue, the symposium, describes this supper attended by Socrates and other historical figures from Plato's own 5th century BC, Athens. The nature of the speeches each of the guests deliver concern the nature of Eros. And as you know, the Greeks were polytheists, and so they discussed whether Eros, that is, sensual desire, was a god. But you know the broader meaning of Eros is uh, desire in general, although it's always had this connotation of sexual desire. Yes, you're right. Sensuality was popular even in Plato's time and in our grandparents' time, strangely enough. One speaker argued in the symposium that Eros was a god whose mother was named Pania, which means poverty, and his father was named Poros, which means plenty or resources or a means to an end. Greek words have lots of meanings. So he argued, this speaker, that is why Eros always leaves the worshiper of this god wanting for more, because it's this experience of plenty followed by this experience of frustration and poverty. So Plato's point is that if Eros was a real god, and Socrates says this, if Eros was a real god, a real god lacks nothing. And since Eros always leaves you wanting, Eros can't be a god. These are polytheists talking about God. So desire always wants, Eros always wants and is never filled. And therefore it can't be itself the purpose of life. But since it wants something, the question then turns to what does Eros wants? Well, towards the end of the dialogue, Socrates finally speaks up. Up until that moment, all the speakers have spoken about Eros, but, and this is a feature of Greco-Roman culture, they spoke of it in an exclusively same-sex experience, usually involving young males. Because 
there isn't reproduction or family or anything involved, else involved with it. So for Plato, it's the way to look at the erotic without thinking of family or anything else. What does eros mean in and of itself? Well, this idea of pederasty, which was not a negative thing for the Greeks and the Romans. It was tremendously negative for Jews and Christians up until the present time. We might find it offensive to modern ears. But remember, when you talk about 2,500 years ago in Athens, you're talking about a different time and a different place. For them, virtue centered around domination and power. It really wasn't about union with God. It was directed towards another end. Uh, for Aristotle, a student of Plato, it would be happiness. You'd see what Christians will do with all of this. Because in itself, it's not necessarily Christianity. Although for the early Christians, their ideas resonated with the gospel. So you're there at dinner with this crowd. It's a little creepy, but you're going to stay it out because dessert hasn't been served yet. And that's when Socrates introduces a discordant note into this dialogue about Eros. He spoke of a woman prophet he had met named Diotima. Now it's interesting because Plato is one of the few ancient philosophers that thought that women should be educated if they were ready for it. And in uh, philosophy in the Greco-Roman world in general, women play next to no role in it. So that Socrates, in this discussion of Eros, especially of the same-sex pederasty uh, version of Eros, that he brings in an adult woman to talk about Eros, is significant. Diotima is this prophet. And in her brief time at the symposium, she sums up Eros, making the observation that eros is meant for frustration unless it goes someplace. And in her argument, it must ascend to the direct experience of beauty. Think about this in a Platonic way. For Plato, beauty was an idea or what he would call a form. I believe the Greek is pronounced eidos. And so Diotima said, and here, here's her illustration, you may be attracted to a beautiful body, but then find yourself attracted to other beautiful bodies. What do they all have in common? What they all have in common is beauty. And so beauty can't be the property of one body alone. It must be something that all these bodies participate in. And then there's different levels of beauty. Once you find a certain someone and you settle down, presumably in a heterosexual relationship, and you have families, now you enter into something different. You learn to start appreciating something more than somebody's physical beauty. You start to see beauty in their character and their virtue. Then you start to see the culture around you differently. How does it affect beauty? How does it affect the well-being of my family? And then you start to see the need, she says, of law and a sense of order in the city because this is one of Plato's major concerns, which he brings up in The Republic, which is about how the individual soul is reflected in the order of the city. But even that points to something more. And it's this appreciation of beauty that is in a form or an idea that truly exists, that's beyond or behind 
or grounding human experience. And so for Diotima, Eros would just be frustrating if it didn't go someplace. Love goes someplace. For Plato, it'd be the appreciation of beauty. This has been called by later philosophers as Diotima's ladder, that there's these different steps, one body, multiple bodies, a different appreciation of love, and love of virtue, not just a body, and then love of the city that forms the virtue, and then this beauty that gives all the form to virtue and the body that exists in its own realm. Do you see why Christians might be attracted to that realm of thought? It's not Christianity, but it has some Christian features in it, right? That we're going to someplace beyond this world. So, Christians would argue later that it wasn't really beauty that people wanted, it was God. And so, consider Diotima's ladder, this rational, philosophical uh, contemplation on human experience. And then, taking that reason, ask how this proposition of faith in the gospel today takes what Plato understood but takes it much further than Plato would ever get. Matthew's Gospel and the Greatest Commandment. So, if we're patient, we can learn something from most anyone, I would say, especially from lawyers. And in the Gospel today, a lawyer, someone who studies the Torah, asked Jesus a question to test him. The question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And the Lord answered that the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's your will, with all your soul, that's your life, with all your mind, that's your intellect. You love God completely. Then he said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that? Because the neighbor is the image of God in the world. And so these two commandments, Jesus, they ask for one and Jesus gives them two because Jesus is never bound by our questions. They, he's quoting from Deuteronomy in the book of Leviticus. And in those, that portion of the law, the Torah, we're called to love God completely and told to love our neighbors ourselves. And that essentially means we can never give to another human being or another thing, the love that is owed to God alone. That would be idolatry. But it's also the problem of uh, Diotima's uh, ladder, is if Eros just reflects in on itself where desire is, we just keep hitting the same button over and over again. Oh, it's gonna be a frustrating life. You know, St. Augustine commented on this portion of Matthew, and he said that if you take the two commandments, Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said that it really describes Moses and the Ten Commandments. So think of the picture. Moses is descending down the mountain. He's coming from up high, like down a ladder, where he's going to talk to people. We're in this wild party of around a golden bowl. And then Augustine would say, as charity comprises the two commandments to which the Lord related the whole law and the prophets, so the Ten Commandments were themselves given on two tablets. Exodus does say there were two tablets. 
There, three were written on one tablet and seven on the other. And I suspect you already know how that's uh, how that's divided. It's don't create uh, graven images. Don't take the nor name of the Lord thy God in vain. Keep holy the Sabbath. Then the other tablet is all about human beings. Respect your mom and dad. Uh, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't don't steal. Honor your uh, your neighbor's marriages, honor your neighbor's property. And so for the Jews and the Christians, uh, love has always come from a higher source. God has given us love and revelation. And it's just like what Plato thought was that this world does not explain itself. It has to go someplace. And so he's going from human experience up. Moses is bringing divine revelation down. And so this higher source of law. So the love of God is best protected by loving your neighbor, loving them not as God. Then you don't create idols, right? If you don't love them to the extent that it frustrates you about and makes life completely uh, meaningless, if you make uh, your neighbor just the ultimate purpose of your existence, well, then you end up blaspheming because life becomes meaningless and purposeless. Then that second tablet of the laws is how it is that you protect your soul. Because you notice the Jesus' commandments are positive. Love God, love your neighbor. The Ten Commandments are negative. Don't make idols, don't blaspheme, don't, uh, uh, don't murder. Of course, the positive one, I guess, is love your parents. Um, but this whole understanding of the law was enlightened by this idea of a Diotima's ladder and how it is that the law and the prophets, because the prophets are the great ethical teachers in Israel, how the law and the prophets teach us about ascending to God because divine ascent is a huge image used for um, how it is that we go to God. Or another way of looking at it, we ascend to God by plunging into the depths of our own interior life. I'm gonna talk about how it is that informs how you think about spiritual reading, your reading of uh, uh, the, the gospel, and so that you're on the same page with the church when you're thinking about the spiritual life. Perhaps you've heard in our Catholic spiritual tradition of the three stages of the interior life, the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. Think about it as a ladder to uh, union with God. So starting out, the symposium uh, is an example of teaching about human love uninformed by faith, hope, and love, the three theological virtues that direct us towards participation in the life of the Trinity. But the symposium and other pagan philosophy like it, uh, it didn't make up the idea that love goes someplace. It's just human experience, but it's just trying to explain that experience with just using reason. That is problematic. And so 
Plato and Aristotle, his student, would develop what they called a teleological morality. Telos means purpose or end. That says all virtue has a purpose or an end. It's going to make you a great warrior. It's going to make you, in Aristotle's terms, happy. Uh, the great warrior, I think, would be more like how Homer would think of it. These are these uh, large tendencies in Greek thought. Plato, like the authors of scriptures, was drawing on common hum human experience, but uninformed by Christian revelation. Faith takes us beyond where reason and human experience alone can lead. As Christians over the millennia that separates us from Plato in the time of Christ have contemplated the ascent to God. And that contemplation has given our, our tradition of those three stages of the interior life, the purgatory, the illuminative, and the unitive way. Let's first talk about the purgative way. So Christians have this belief in purgatory, right? We're going to celebrate the Feast of All Souls a week from Monday. We're going to pray for the poor souls in purgatory. And for some Christians, they just have bailed out on that. But in so doing, they really ignore 2,000 years of human experience and reason. This is the thing. When you discipline yourself, when you fast, when you avoid sin, you are already in the purgative way. You're already in purgatory. And that is part of the kingdom of God. It may be a struggle, but the kingdom of God is all already amongst you. So in order to ascend to God, we must do battle with sin in our life because it distorts our experience of life. Why? Because sin tends to make idols of people and things. Selfishness keeps turning us in on ourselves. And so as we keep trying to use things for our own benefit, instead of seeing them as, as a gift from God to be used as our creator would show us or to be used with love for him and neighbor, um, we just end up like Adam and Eve in this very frustrated experience of eternity. Nothing goes anywhere on its own. Money for money's sake goes nowhere. Politics for politics' sake goes nowhere. Love for love's sake goes nowhere. I mean by love, I mean a sensual love, eros. Life lived in sin is like a cul-de-sac. It just goes round in increasingly frustrating circles and you refuse to take the way out to the main boulevard. There's no escape unless you see that the love of your parents, another's life, another's property, their good name, their spouse, and the truth can actually lead you out into a larger world. A larger world where not everything goes your way. That's why you're going to experience suffering. That's why Jesus says, if you're not willing to carry the cross and follow me, you will not go where I'm going. This is the purgative way. It's why you know you're on the way to God. Boy, but it can be uncomfortable. Welcome to purgatory. The second table of the Ten Commandments, dishonoring parents, murder, lying, theft, and envy of another spouse or property, makes things or persons the, the end of human life. And they just can't be. Eros wants something. And if what it wants and gets, it wants something more, then whatever it got can't be God. So that's Plato's point. If we will respect God's image in others, we can avoid making anyone else the center of our existence. And that's, like I said, idolatry and blasphemy. The experience of purgatory, 
is to start climbing the ladder by entering the kingdom of God. And that leads to the next rung in the ladder, and that is the illuminative way. Illuminative as in enlightening. Sin darkens our intellect, and you can just see it by looking out into the world around you. You cannot allow yourselves to be distorted by these world, uh, worldly and idolatrous ways of thinking. Love of neighbor in a human way leads to love of God. Remember, Jesus tells us we're supposed to love God completely, but only love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we have to learn our, to love ourselves in a human way also with all our failings. This is a tough one for sinners to accept, that God loves them, God accepts them, um, and that they need to move on to a place where their mind can be healed, their intellect can be healed. So these two commandments in joining us by the Lord in today's gospel open up the pathway to God. And in illumination, at least we start seeing the world as it is. We see God's world. We can pray and hear and see God respond to us. We see the world in the light of God. That's why God isn't the person we see in this world. God's the light by which we see other persons and other things and understand them and love them appropriately. Loving the Lord and imitating his love, his love of God the Father, um, being faithful to a spouse, uh, supporting other people, especially the poor. How about people that disagree with you, learning to love them, being concerned about the well-being of your community by how you think, what you say, and what you do. This is the call to fraternity. This is the illuminative way. This is what saves you from exercising liberty and equality as a rabid, distorted individualism. And yet you see yourself as a person capable of being loved and loving. Politics cannot give that to you. Money cannot give that to you. Only God can give that to you. And that leads to the third stage of uh, the interior life. And that's the unitive way. It's the way of experiencing the presence of God. Think about this. This is a homily I'm going to be delivering at Mass. The symposium is, after all, a dinner party. When all the speaking is done, what does everybody do? They just go home because it's incapable of delivering the goal of beauty that Plato talks about. Mass, likewise, is a supper but with another goal in mind. We hear from our teacher, the Lord, as the guests at the symposium heard from each of the guests. You hear the priest say a few things. It is an experience like the symposium because then we have supper together with the Lord. The Lord is, however, showing us the way out of the experience of love as mixed poverty and plenty, um, uh, pleasure and pain, Desire, or arrows, is a means to an end, not the end in itself. It's desire, however, that keeps us moving forward to the experience of God. The unitive way is the experience of life with God present in life, like God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. The third commandment, remember I've only mentioned, I think, nine out of the ten. 
idolatry and blasphemy than all those on the second tablet? Did you notice I didn't talk about keep holy the Sabbath? I was saving it for the unitive way. The third commandment is to keep holy the Sabbath. It's to be at peace and rest in God's creation. St. Augustine, if you remember anything about St. Augustine, is that he said in his book, The uh, Confessions, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Because that is what the unitive way is. It's the experience of consolation which comes in our life. It's this sense of well-being. It's that momentary expression of hope that says, as trouble as this time of pandemic and election can be, I believe this is all going someplace. And it may not be uh, peace in the way I would wish for it for my community, but I don't have to make things worse than they are. The purgative way disciplines our minds and bodies so we don't make our experience of life worse. The illuminative way enlightens our intellect, our understanding, the illuminative way. It's the unitive way uh, where we experience the fruits of all of this, which is peace. You know, it's not a one-way ladder. Um, Sister Joan, who explained all this to me, she says it's like one of those toothbrushes that spin around. You go through the purgative, the illuminative, the unitive, then again, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive, but always in a different experience, always changed. Um, because God isn't done with us yet. So, faith and reason. You know, certain truths of human life can be learned through experience and reflection. That's clear. We can seek lies of acquired virtue by trying to be good. Everybody can acquire some sense of goodness in their life. But the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity... They're the ones that lead us beyond where reason alone can take us, and they're our creator's gift to the Christian. Early Christians thought that Socrates was a prophet of Christ because to the Greeks, his use of freedom kind of uh, presupposed or uh, seemed to prefigure some of the truths of the gospel. And it became this means that the gospel from Jewish culture, because they're all Jews, was able to enter this uh, Greek Gentile experience because Plato became the bridge. In fact, St. Augustine in his book, The City of God, doesn't really bother to talk about other uh, philosophers. He thinks they go nowhere. He only talked about the Platonists. And so it's good to remember Plato and the role that he had in helping us uh, understand the gospel as it is experienced in our own life of overcoming sin, becoming closer to God, and experience the peace that God has to give. In short, Plato believed, although he wasn't a Christian or a Jew, that there's a world beyond what we can see. But reason can only make us aware of it. It can't really get us there. We can only enter into union with God through faith, hope, and love because God is love. And that woman, Diotima the prophet, she understood this. And her participation and presence at the symposium, even if just in the story of Socrates, was a reminder to this closed dinner party where everybody was scheming on everybody else that there was a way out.
Christ.